You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From Shakespeare to Schwartz. From Fosse to Alvin Ailey. From Sondheim to Borellis. From McNally to Faye. It happened to the greats. It still happens every day. When lightning strikes. It's the moment you know. When lightning strikes. Where you're meant to go. You can stand and shout your eagerness. Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. Alex Edelman is a comedian and writer whose Orthodox Jewish upbringing has helped inspire his critically and commercially lauded work for the stage and screen. He is known for his TV writing and solo stage shows. In fact, all three of his shows have been hits on London's West End and at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. His current solo show, Just For Us, is playing at the Cherry Lane Theatre in New York City. Congratulations on your extraordinary show, Just For Us. For people who might not know, what the show is, or if somebody were to ask you, what is this show about? What would you say? Um, it's a show about um, identity and empathy and the limits of our, uh, and the limits of those things and the constraints of those things. But uh, more broadly, it's about a Jew who goes to a meeting of white nationalists in Queens. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly, or more specifically, I guess I'd say that's what it's about. And um, there's so much of you and your family embedded in, and you're in the show and it's heart wrenching at times. It's hilarious. Um, when did you get the inspiration to write about it? Do you know, honestly, I was, I was writing on a TV show in uh, Los Angeles and the show was, um, it was, it was a fun show with great people, but I was just sort of starting to get burnt out. And then when the show ended, I said to my agent, let me take like a break for a couple of weeks and let me just try to find some, let me just go and do a whole bunch of weird stuff. So I did a whole bunch of weird stuff. This is end of 2017, beginning of 2018. And I went to that thing and I did a bunch of other things around that time, 2017, 2018. 
And then at the beginning of 2018, I was in London. I have a residency there at this place called the Soho Theater, where uh, it was the be- it's the best, best, best theater in the world, I think. Uh, it's a place where people incubate and run uh, solo comedy shows. And, uh, and, and I just kind of, I got on stage, this is end of January, 2018 and something just started to sort of take shape and that was the show. So that was, I guess, beginning of 2018. Is it okay to give away what, what prompted the story or? Sure. Go ahead. Okay? You get, yeah. So, yeah. Well, or maybe you should tell you saw this tweet from a white nationalist and Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep brave. I keep track of. Uh, I keep track of. I, I like to look at the worst people on the internet. I'm always uh-huh. constantly searching for the worst, you know, worst political opinions, worst, worst opinions general. And so this, this was yeah. up there. This was one of them. And I got really. I sort of went down the rabbit hole and started looking at these guys on various platforms, trying new follow them on on various platforms and obviously almost always keeping very quiet. And I saw this uh, tweet from someone on the list and the tweet said, Hey, if you're curious about your whiteness or something like that, come to this address. And I uh, ended up going to the address and that's how it was sort of the impetus for the show. I just think of your bravery to go, to go, I don't want to give away too much because the storytelling is just absolutely brilliant and it's exciting to um, experience it you know, as you tell it. But I think of the, the courage it took to go to an apartment building, a private apartment building. It's yeah. a, a, it's a specific a, kind of curiosity. <laughs> that will make you go. But I've also gone to a lot of places that aren't in the, I went, I gone to conferences on nuclear Iran. I've gone to, mm-hmm. you know, I've, uh, I've taken flyers from people on the subway trying to get you to go to these radical churches. And I've sat there in those churches, then listen to them say some stuff that wouldn't be exactly considered politically appropriate. Like, I think what's interesting, you know, like it's important for people to be clear eyed about what's at the very fringes of good taste and, and polite society without, you know, without being like, Oh, I, you know, without dismissing it out of hand and trying to, by dismissing it out of hand, I'm not saying that we should be like welcoming white nationalists into anything, but I am saying it's important to know what the most egregious citizens are saying to each other on a regular basis. So that's, that's why the show is, you know, that's, that's what's at the center of the show, I guess. And I love how open-minded you are. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thing. I was just thinking more of that, of your safety, you know, of going to a private address Hmm. in an apartment building, (laughs) thinking, they were, they were like bears though. They were more afraid of me than I was of them. And this isn't in the show, but at some point someone goes, are you, are you a cop? You have to tell us if you're a cop. And I'm like, no, I'm not a cop. But like, it it was, they were terrified that there was someone in their apartment. I actually do. um, And also there are, the show is, is art, not journalism. So I don't want to, but the reason I say that is because like some woman was like, one of the people there was like, you're trespassing. 
you're trespassing right now. And I was like, oh shit, am I trespassing? Like, am I, you know, am I the one who's going to be in trouble here? You know, like, um, that, that is, uh, I don't think I, if, if any, if she wants to press charges now, it seems kind of silly, but, yes. uh, but if she wants to be like, Hey, excuse me, I was, I was, you know, I'm a white nationalist and this guy trespassed in my apartment at a meeting of other white nationalists. Um, you know, well, they tweeted yeah. out the meeting. When did you know that this was the fodder for a show? I know Nora Ephron used to say, everything is copy. But did you hmm. leave or were you in the moment there where you thought, oh, God. Well, this- I, knew, I knew there was, I knew as I was being kicked out that this was a story I was going to tell friends. But uh-huh. it wasn't until I told a couple of friends, um, I I told a couple of friends. I told my friend Morgan. I told my friend Nick. I told my friend Chloe. I told my friend Danny. And I think three of those four people went, you should probably do, ma- do material about this. You know, um, and, and they, and, and I think it took me a minute. Uh, I think it took me a minute to sort of get it all together and make myself, uh, it took me a minute to get it together and make myself aware that this was like, cause, cause telling a story to your friends, like making, I think a big trick to doing a solo show is making it feel like you're talking to an audience in the way that you would talk to your friends. But honestly, the craftsmanship of talking to your friends is huge. Like, or sorry, the the craftsmanship of telling a story for an audience is huge because you want to caveat things, you want to buttress things, you want momentum, you want to make a side seem intentional. Like everything is, you know, everything is 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 what it. Uh, sorry, everything needs to be carefully calibrated when you're putting together a, a solo show. So, or putting together even like a bit of uh, of like trenchant stand up. So. I, sorry, this is a longer answer than this is a longer That's answer right. than it needs to be. But I knew it was going to be a story immediately for friends, but it took talking to those friends to realize that it was a story for the stage. What do you mean when you say, I love that everything needs to be calibrated? Can you tell me more about that? My favorite stand-up is a p- it belies a particular point of view, but it welcomes people from every point of view to understand that. I need to be empathetic with white nationalists, but not sympathetic with white nationalists. Yes. Like Which that, you do. Yeah. Yeah. But but that takes a lot of careful and I need you to see the banality. And also like there was one person in that room and I don't I, like, I don't say this explicitly on stage, but I sort of communicate the guy whose name in the show is wit, right? Like there was someone in that room who was very funny to me. Like, like he had little ticks and habits and energies that made me like, that made me go like, Oh, I would laugh at this person with this, you know? And so like, you know, I want to, I want to communicate that, but I don't want an audience to be like, Oh, look at a cuddly picture of white nationalists. And so the way to do that, the secret to every, the secret to like both sides in everything is to present it within a personal perspective, 
right? Like this show is not a referendum on white nationalism. This show is not a treatise on anti-Semitism. This show is not a insistence that the world is a certain way or that quote unquote, these people are a certain way. This is just a story based on something that happened to me told in a fashion that I think is resonant, right? Like told and emphasize and uh, by the by the way i'm not not making choices i'm choosing to emphasize certain things i'm choosing to leave out certain things i've changed some details for my safety and the safety like because frankly i don't want these people ever re-entering my life um and i have nightmares about them uh doing so but uh but yeah making trying to trying to uh make it accessible and also the show is both specifically jewish like if you if you are Jewish, you have you have a think an access to this show, but also if you love Jews or are curious about <laughs> Judaism or and I say I'm like I'm serious like if people yeah. have at any point you know had sympathy or empathy or enjoyed something Jewish, then I think they access the show in a certain way. And if you don't know Jews at all, you access the show in a certain way, and that's and that needs to you know. And the show needs to be for people across that spectrum. So that's what I mean by calibrating it. Sorry, Gerald, that's a really long answer. No, uh, no, it's a smart answer. And you really, you really fall in love with your family as well no, yeah, and, and who they are and the kind of humans they are to embrace others, not of the tribe. I'd love to know what's your lightning strikes moment. When did you know you had to be an artist or the moments in your life that Mel, set you on this path. Mel Brooks, uh-huh. you know, my grandmother and my grandfather playing the 2000 year old man for me was special. Uh-huh. Um, my parents, I've never talked about this actually, but my parents sent uh-huh. me to see a production of spam a lot in Boston where you grew up. Right, uh, in yeah. And yeah. I just uh-huh. laughed and laughed and laughed. And also Alan Zweibel and Billy Crystal are written a solo show called 700 Sundays. Yes. And it just, I have never, you know, the cliche people go, I laughed and I cried. There is a moment mm-hmm. in 700 Sundays that I can still remember. It's like a bell in my head um, where Billy Crystal says something about his father and it's um and i laughed and i cried at at the same time Mm -hmm. i was hysterically laughing and sobbing and uh billy crystal mostly people know him as like you know a guy who does family comedies now or but like his his skill so undeniable in that moment that show i think i was 16 and I waited for Billy Crystal at the stage door afterwards, which I'm <laughs> embarrassed to, to say. Uh, and he came out and I had a baseball. They were selling these 700 Sundays baseballs. And I would, I think I lost it, which is so devastating. Mm-hmm. If anyone knows Billy Crystal, but I want him to get me a signed 700 Sundays baseball because it was, um, but it had a really profound impact on me, that show. And even, by the way, the, the cast of Spamalot, 
um, in Boston, I waited. I, so they, my parents took me and then I went down there a separate night on my own. I think I'm 16 still or 17. And I waited for them outside the stage door. And I asked if I could see the sets from the back and these nice oh. performers took me in and they showed me how they did the nights. Cause there's a thing where the night, uh, gets dis disemboweled basically. And it's beautifully done and really funny. And they showed me how they do it. And it was just a really nice touring cast. So I think those shows were great. And my first Broadway show, um, I saw a bunch of Broadway shows. My parents would occasionally take me to town. I saw The Wedding Singer with Stephen Lynch, which wasn't very good. But, um, but there were great parts of it. Um, I saw shows like All My Sons uh, with Katie uh, Holmes, which was, I thought, very good. Um, and the first thing I saw in New York was uh, in the Heights when I came here for college. So I, so that sort of, I, I mean, like all these things made me love the solo show format or made me love theater, but comedy, there was for stand up comedy, there were, there were a bunch of great comics in Boston and there was a CD by a guy named Brian Regan, whose work I've always loved. And, uh, and Brian is sort of a friend. What's crazy is that some of these people are friends of mine now, you know, like, it's like some of these folks are, you know, you know, the first show that I saw that truly, truly hooked me and made me want to be part of like the community once I was in college. Cause like I saw it in the Heights when I got to NYU, is this, is this too tangenty or is this like, you know, no, it's of, great with Lynn Manuel. Was he in it at that point? He was, he was, it okay. was awesome. It was really great, but that felt like a pipe dream. I saw a show called bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson, oh, which yeah. was, which was Alex Timbers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, Alex yeah. Timbers, yeah. Michael Friedman, I think was the composer. Rest in peace. Um, ben Walker, who was a standup. Mm -hmm. I saw it because this guy, Ben was a standup. And then they were like, you know, Ben's on Broadway in this show. So I went to go see the show and it actually cost a fortune to get in. Yeah. But uh, Broadway shows were, were almost always very inaccessible. Uh, for me because yeah. they were so expensive, but, um, but bloody was so good. And I saw Ben and I went, Ben, can I come to this again? And he's like, yeah, what do you mean? And I was like, you know, I think I might want to see it again. He's like, yeah, Alex, people see Broadway shows like more than once sometimes. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I saw the show, I think like three times. I really loved bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. I wrote like a long paper on it for a class in college. And like, you know, so there, so the light, the idea of a lightning strike moment is for me, it's not been, uh, you know, it's like, as Hemingway says about going bankrupt, it's one of those things that happen very gradually. And then all at once, right. Like, uh, uh, like I, the, and also I was a, there were moments when I got to England and I spent my last semester of NYU at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And, I saw these solo shows at the Soho theater and fell into this community who supported me as I started to build my own solo shows like Phoebe Waller, Wallerbridge who does Fleabag was a huge, huge help to me early on. This is before she was a, I slept on Phoebe's mom's couch for a while when I was putting things together. And Phoebe is like, Phoebe's a big part of, I met my director, Adam Brace. This is a bit, 
name dropping, but I met my director at Phoebe's birthday party in 2013. And Adam and I have been collaborating since 2014. And, and he's the director on this show. In fact, I was literally just reading Adam's play. They drink it in the Congo, um, which was so like, I've had, I've had really great luck in terms of my lightning strikes. The, the, I, I have, I have, and I've, I've not been let down by any of those people um, in terms of meeting them. They've all been extremely kind. And even Lynn, who I've only cra- crossed paths with, you know, in passing once or twice. And I always try to be cool. Um, <laughs> he's been really nice. And, and yeah, it's, it's a great, great set of community. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What? When you got to NYU, did you, I know you said it was so gradual, your path, but did you enter NYU as a, as any kind of performing arts what, or writing or what was your major at I was NYU? An, I was an yeah. international relations major, politics. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I was not international relations and philosophy. There was very little. I also have a sort of antiquated not antiquated, but I have a bit bit of a rigid, closed-minded view about theater. Or, or sorry, about college, which is that I truly believe that people should go to college for educations, not jobs, which is very, um, like, highfalutin. But I wound up uh, being an English literature major with a creative writing minor. So, uh, But I, I got a great education at NYU, and I had the best professors. I had folks like Darren Strauss and Jonathan uh Letham and Nathan Englander who have all had their own uh theatrical moments in the sun Zadie Smith was one of my professors Susan Orlean Megan O'Rourke um Mm -hmm. I took I took classes from from just the best people Brian Waterman who's uh who came to see my show the other day which was so cool like I've had Mm -hmm. I've had really good luck and really great joyful moments um yeah, I know you said you you took your last semester in London and had that mm-hmm. incredible moment, the Soho Theater. But how did you go from being this NYU student, you know, and seeing lots of theater to getting into stand up? How did that happen? I was a stand up first. I was, I mean, frankly, I was more, much more of a comedian. Theater was a pipe dream for me. Like uh-huh. it just was one of those things where it was my taste and so was stand up. But it took me until my early twenties to try to put the two together. You know, uh-huh. like I wanted to always be a stand up with a little more theatricality, right? Like I was a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit 
left of center with some of my interests, a little bit queer, a little bit like, you know, a little bit Jewish, a little bit thoughtful, but I loved the hard, cold punchlines of stand-up comedy. And I still do. Like my show, like <laughs> my show truly is a stand-up comedy show. Like the show has got, it's just all of the bits are very personal. But, you know, before this run, my last warm up for the run was at a comedy club in Cleveland called Hilarities. Like this show works in the idea for this show is that it can work in any space. Like I've done it yes. in de dentist offices, comedy clubs, the highest brow theaters. <laughs> I did it yeah. in the courtyard of a contemporary art museum in North Adams, Massachusetts at Mass Mocha. Like these, the, the uh -huh. show is I always love the stand up comic idea that you can put yourself in a briefcase and just travel and, and eat that way. And so theater is a wonderful luxury for me, but ultimately the show is me, right? The show is one person. I've always been, I've always found that really appealing, which is the, the lifeness of a, of a standup comedy uh, approach. The necessary minimalism of stand-up comedy really appeals to me. Like my set debt, they said to me, you want, you should have a set for, your show. And I said, I don't want it. I, I'm a stand-up comic. I was like, it should just be me. I was, I, you know, it should be me in a microphone. But then, you know, I saw the wisdom and sort of, and by the way, this probably is one of those things where I need to slowly edge out of my comfort zone in, in a way and, and start putting sets together and, you know, make things slightly more ornate. But, um, but I mean, the show does have set decoration, but you'll probably notice it. The set decoration is, is all, I don't want to ruin it for people to see the show. It's weird that this is a detail I'm circumspect about, but the set decoration is all various implements that are used for stand up. There's, you know, the stools mm -hmm. and the microphone and like those things are, the show is supposed to work with, for stand up comedy in a stand-up comedy aesthetic. Like I'm very proud of it having elements of stand-up comedy in it. When, so. I'm just curious, when, when did you first start doing stand-up? Was that in Boston or at NYU that you started, right? Started doing your stand-up? I started in Boston. Um, oh, in high school. I started in I got rollerblading to open mics in high school. And then, um, um, Rollerblading. Yeah. I was roller. Mic? I know. I Is know. I would rollerblade. What during open mic? Wait, rolling blade, rollerblading during open mics or no? Two no, I rollerblade to music open mics in. Um, I would rollerblade to music open mics in. Uh, in in like Boston suburbs, I didn't realize that that comedian. I thought that the only comedians allowed at comedy clubs were huge comedy acts so i was like oh god you know if i want to start stand-up comedy i need to start at little open mics and music open mics so i would go and i was the only con and i was absolutely as I, I was terrible i was so awful i was as bad as you could possibly think i was i was worse i was like so i was so unspeakably uh, i didn't really start start to like put it together until college when you say music, were you playing music? Or? No, I was doing stand-up at music open mics. People hated me. Gerald, <laughs> this was a bad fit that I was that I that I committed to. Like I was awful. I would torture 
these audiences with mediocre half-based stand-up for a long time. Like I was a bad comedian. So you started writing your material in high school. Uh, yeah, you started writing material then, in high school. Yeah, and then you you went from there. And what about um, UCB? How did that come into your life? Well, you Citizens know, Brigade. You know, the funny thing is, I never trained there. I just there uh-huh. was a group called Gentrify, the sh- uh-huh. show called Gentrify, and it was run by um, Mackenzie Condon, Darcy Carden, who's now Janet on the Good Place, Brendan Scott Jones, who's an extremely funny character actor, Justin Tyler, who's just hilarious uh, podcaster, actor, comic, like seven or eight of the Alden Ford. Like these are the funniest people I had ever met and still are some of the funniest people I'd ever met. And I, they had a show in, in New York and they would um, throw me on this show. This is like 2014, 2015. And I built my solo, my first solo show millennial, which is what gave me a career at this little night uh every friday night at ucb i'd go to shoal and then afterwards i'd walk over to this place in ucb east in the east village and it was just the best place to do anything i was so uh so lucky i'm still so lucky oh my beast i haven't thought about it the beast (laughs) i miss the beast (laughs) the beast the carpet the blue carpet but did you audition how did you get I was doing stand-up. I was always a stand-up, but they let me do. But uh-huh. they, these guys just, for some reason, I still don't know why these guys were. And also, I was, like, still trying to figure out how to, like, be not socially maladroit with people. Like, I, you know, these guys were just really nice. They had endless patience for a young comedian. And I would just show up, and they would throw me on almost every week. And, like... I'll never, I, I'll, 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 I'll always be so grateful to them, but no, it was the UCB scene was, I fell into through standup. There were, and there were other standup shows, lasers in the jungle, which Dan Wilbur um, was one of the hosts of like, mm. like the, the UC, it was UCB standup that really um, UCB, the pit, the tank, those sort yes. of like early 2010s uh, standup venues, Luna lounge, lit lounge, those places were where I started getting up and making some money and starting to earn a little bit of a name as a comic. But it was because of those used to be people who were like really nice to me. who saw like a little something here or there. It's incredible. And how, how did you get involved though with the Soho theater? How did that happen? I know you said you were in England and then how did you know to, apply there or how did that happen? I didn't apply that. You know, my life, and maybe this is a bit of, um, my life has been characterized by, um, just showing up at places I wanted to be and never leaving. <laughs> uh, and like, that's what happened at the Soho theater. I saw a bunch of shows there. I really liked it. I kept going. I started sitting in the cafe during the daytimes and writing material. And everyone kind of thought I was like a little nuts. And then uh, my first solo show did really well. And everyone's like, oh, man, I guess he's not like super nuts. I guess there's something else going on there. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, the, so- the Soho sort of just accepted me and let me stay. And it was, it was a great 
it was a great situation. And now I'm sort of a house. Uh, now I'm sort of like a bit of, that's a bit of my like hometown. That That's sort of like a, uh, I'm sort of a hometown comedian there when I, when I, uh, when I perform at the Soho. So I love it a lot, that place. It's so incredible. And your family is so, your family is such a presence in this mm. piece. What is their take on it? What oh, they their, love it. Yeah. What is it like when they see it? You know, my parents haven't had a chance to see it yet. Um, or they, saw, when they came to an early workshop in London at Soho. And I think they knew that there was something there. My mom saw it in uh, January of 2020 when I did as a one-off and she had a really good time and, and thought it was very good. My mom is really, it's so funny. My mom is, is very, is, is a very, very direct. She said to me, you know, I didn't like your second solo show. I've done three. This is my third. She went, the first one was good. And this one's better than the first one. It's really, really good. But the second one, I didn't like as much. And I was like, okay. You know, like my mom is, that's the kind of person my mom is. They're just like happy that I have make a living doing something that I love, which is truly, I've also benefited tremendously from, you know, their patience and willingness to send me to, to do stuff. And, and also this sort of like leeway that they gave me as a young kid to sort of rollerblade around Boston and, you know, the two thousands and just be in various, you know, spaces, put myself in. Well, they come off as, yeah, they come off as real menches in this, (laughs) in this piece. And maybe this is too lofty, but how has this experience doing the show changed you writing it? Um, Because you really do a deep dive into who you are and your family and their values. I think it's made me more, um, I think it's calmed uh, me down. I think I carried, you know, even all the way through, I guess through 2019, I carried a lot of insecurity with me. Not that I'm not still insecure. Everyone's very insecure, but I think this was, I think it was characterized by a frenetic energy in my twenties and in my twenties, I think it was characterized by sort of being like, and, and I think this, this is sort of a more mature step. The show is my, my director, Adam said that the show signifies my transition from little brother comedian to big brother comedian, which I think is a really good way of understanding my uh, artistic arc. I know that's, that's a little high. That's a very, very pretentious thing and a little self aggrandizing, but you know, when you're, when, when, if you look at my early, early work with, you know, heavy air quotes, my early work is characterized by sort of like a puckish impish energy. And, and I think that that thing will never leave. Um, but I also think that this sort of is a little more authoritative and confident in a way that the early stuff uh, uh, wasn't. There will always be sort of a yin yang, right, of like, of, of confident. And I mean, I'll always have, like, I think I, I early on had the, you know, I think because I'd watched so much comedy and was just sort of emulating the comics that I loved, I sort of carried myself on stage a little more, um, like, you know, solid than I was. 
which is good and bad. And now I think I'm sort of grown into a little bit. So I'm not faking that quite as much, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm been very lucky. And, uh, and I think that this show has, this show has, has really resonated with people. I'm so thrilled that this show has resonated with people. It's coming for me at the right time in my, my life as a comic. So, uh, yeah. And how did Mike Birbiglia get on board? I mean, I fucking love Mike Birbiglia. He's my comedy rabbi. Um, (laughs) Him and comics like Gary Goleman and Maria Bamford and, you know, and uh, this guy in Boston named Tony V were the comics that I most admired growing up. But I also, like, Mike... I've always been a big fan of Mike. And then when he was doing the new one on Broadway, uh, I got a DM invitation going, Hey, if you want to come see Mike's show, he'd be happy to have you. And I was like, yeah, fucking please. And so I went (laughs) to go see the show. I brought Ben Walker actually as my, Uh, uh, my buddy and guest. And we had a good time and, uh, and really enjoyed it. And then afterwards, uh, and then afterwards I said a quick hello. And then when he was in LA, I went to the show with my friend Ingrid. Uh, and after that show, I went drop by to say hi. And he went, I hear you have a good solo show. And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, it's, this is 2019. I said, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to make everything work. This is October, November, 2019. And he said, well, how about, how can I see the show? And I said, I'll send you a tape. And he said, that doesn't work for me, actually. Um, How about I put it up for one night in New York and we see if it's any good. And maybe we can do something with it. And that was January of 2020. And then after that show, (laughs) he said, hey, uh, the show is good, but it needs some changes. And he recommended some changes that were very hard. And I knew that they were hard because my director, Adam, had recommended those same changes too. And they were too hard for me. So I had a UK tour coming up, which was truncated by COVID. And I said, okay, how about um, I use this UK tour to try to implement those changes? And I slowly did. And the show got better. And then in March of 2020, he was like, hey, you know, that June or July of 2020 thing that we were talking about, that's not happening now. Uh. And, uh, and yeah, yeah. So, so we re, he called me in October of this year or October. Yeah. October of this year. And he went, it's happening December 1st. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, for real. And he's like, yeah, for real. We'll start getting it ready. And I was like, ah. you know, like I, but I, I panic booked all of these different shows in like Phoenix and Madison and, you know, Cleveland and Bloomington, you know, like anywhere that would have me for anything you know, anywhere that would have me. I went and did it and had just a blast. It was the coolest. And here you are. You did it. Yeah. It's so great. And also it's a lot of fun because, you know, we've gotten a couple, like it's a show that travels pretty easily. Like 
Yeah. Rhode Island, Brown Hillel went, we'd like to put the show up. And I'm like, yeah, like <laughs> it's a show that I can roll out of bed and do with, without, you know, I do a lot of homework before the show. My production coordinator, MC Mangum, who works on the show with me before every show, we write down a list of six things to remember um, before the show. And they're always different. So the show is always changing every little bit by degrees. It's like this living organism. So it's this really fascinating um, exercise where you watch the show. People, who, Someone who saw the show in January of 2018, someone who sees it now will be like, oh, my God, this is a different show. But obviously that would be the case for anything four years later. But it's a, you know, the same story but very different. So, yeah. Are you comfortable sharing what the note was, what they said? what they said the change should be Um, what was it i really love the fact that you know that my shows can pull in uh far-flung things like uh like i love the disparate things that are in my show yes but sometimes (laughs) that love can be uh can have a drawback which is that it's not as focused and so they went, these bits are nice and they get really good laughs, but they're not focused. They're tangents. So how about you kill the tangents and you focus more on the show? And I was like, but I like my tangent. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't belong in the show. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to reckon with. That's really hard to um, wrap your arms around and they were right. I hate to admit that they were right, but they were right. And, uh, yeah, the show is better for it. The show is, there is a full 10 minutes of, or 15 minutes almost of material that has come out of the show, uh, relative to its UK tour and people. And, and this is just, it's just a better show now. It's a shame I should have done it earlier. Frankly, I'll kick myself for a while for not doing it. But, you know, say lovey. Well, maybe you weren't ready. Maybe you had to, you know, get to that place. But it sounds like you, you just all these experiences, all these people came into your life. But was there any kind of training or was it just existing in the world? Stand up. Stand up, Stand up. and exi- I've never taken a class. Um, but also like, you know, I've worked with, I work with Adam Mm -hmm. Brace, who's this guy, this director, and he's a really smart, you know, the play that I'm reading of his right now, you know, we did it at the Alameda in 20, they did at the Alameda in 2016 in London and Seth Barish, who's Mike's director, worked with me for a couple of sessions. Gary Goldman sat with me in a hotel room in Charlotte and watched the whole show and gave notes. Like, so I don't really have a and Danny Jollis, who's my, like, I have friends, Moses Storm, who's another young comic, came to see the show, like, and, and gave notes, like, I, I've never taken a class, but I haven't always, I've been going to school on this since I was 13. So yeah. it's a lifelong thing. And also, I'd be really open to it. My friend, Zach Zucker is an incredible clown. And you know, he was like, let me teach you clowning. And I was like, yeah, man, like, you know, anything that will add to the arsenal. So, so I'm very, uh, I'm not like, look at me, comedy's goodwill hunting over here. But like, it's a, uh, it's just, 
I've never taken a class, but I've been allowed to sit and watch, you know, literally tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of performances from the best people and, and get to learn from that. So it's, it's, it's not exactly like I hustled and, and scrapped and did it all on my own. I just, uh, I just had people who were willing to let me, uh, watch and answer any question. Josh Harmon, Mm -hmm. who's one of my favorite playwrights. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. Bad Jews. (gasps) Who I love came to an early version of this Uh. show and, uh, or not early version. He came early on in this run, but Josh has a. So brilliant. Josh, at the beginning of the pandemic, took some time with me to get on Zoom and talk about plays. And that had a big effect on remounting the show. So, mm-hmm. and Josh teaches playwriting at Columbia. So it's not like I've not taken any formal classes, but I've I've had private tutoring from the best. It's amazing. Well, it's such a pleasure to connect. And thank you so much for sharing. And congratulations. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And thank you so much for coming to the show. Please, if you're listening to this, please do come see it because it's my best work so far. So, yeah. It's just delicious. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you. It still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore, and the talent was booked by Anna Strauss. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.